So we're in Romans. Um, I'm just over here doing the next part in Romans, and God knows what he's doing. He's sovereign. Um, so Romans 12, we're going to be in the first eight verses this morning. Um, so I want to give you, we just finished a big section in Romans, so I need to give you a little bit of a reminder of where, what was happening in Romans before chapters 9 through 11, okay? That's been a while since we were in there. 9 through 11 is a little bit of a parenthesis, okay? doesn't mean it's less important or off topic even. It's just Paul's answering a specific question that would come up after, as a result of what he had already said. Okay, and we've made it through that section, so now we kind of just really need to remember what he was saying to begin with, okay? So I want to give you a fast review, and if, if, if some of this doesn't make sense, just go back and listen to all those sermons, all right? It won't hurt you. It'll be good for you, all right? Um, so if you remember back chapter 1, Romans 1, humanity knew God as the creator but refused to acknowledge him. Instead, they went their own way, refusing to worship him, refusing to acknowledge him as God. What was the result of that? The result of that was God released them to, the fu- to futile thinking. They couldn't think straight or think the truth anymore. They were confused. And then they, it wasn't that they knew anymore how to think. They lost the ability to think clearly about the state of things. They were easily deceived. That resulted in their passions, their fleshly, what their body wanted, they gave it, in other words, whatever that was. And it just became madness. And then from that point, society itself disintegrated and fell apart, and it ceased to function correctly. And we talked about how familiar that scenario is in the world we live in right now. I think it's like a a repeating pattern of humanity, this cycle, right? And he ends that section with some really bad news. Remember that? He said, no one is righteous, no, not one. He makes it clear, no one, only righteous people get into heaven. Only righteous people can have a relationship with God. And then he gives us really bad news and says, but no one is righteous. And if it stopped there, we would all be toast, right? It's really terrible. But he says there is one righteous, and that's Jesus. Jesus has given us his righteousness. That's the good news. That's the gospel, right? Christ is righteousness. And it's actually, I think it's maybe wrong to say he's given us his righteousness. It's more like, we talked about this a lot back then, if you remember, the righteousness is held in Christ, and we are in Christ, okay? That's slightly different, but it's a big difference. So you're not walking around holding your righteousness and trying to preserve it. Like, this is this thing i got to hold and maintain and keep. Instead, it's all in him. And all that you need to do is be in him, and actually God holds you in Christ. That's amazing news. It's not just good news. It's the best news, okay? And, of course, that raised some questions about Israel, which we dealt with in chapters 9 through 11. Okay, so that's the background, if you remember all of that. So now in chapter 12, things turn pretty practical, which is great. For those of you who love, who kind of get tired of me going on and on about all this high-minded theology about, you know, God chose and all this stuff. And you're like, well, what does this have to do with me? Well, here in chapter 12, really through the end, you find out what this means. It's typical pattern for Paul, by the way, is he always starts with the theology and then he says, therefore, live this way, okay? 
So some questions you may have been wondering. What does God expect from me? Or what am I called to do? Or sometimes the question comes out, I want to get involved. What are the Christian things that Christians do? And and what what of those things do I need to be doing? Because I feel like I'm just sort of existing. I'm going to my job and away from my job or I'm cleaning up. Your kids have the LHC virus and you're cleaning up after them. And that's all, you, all you're doing right now is cleaning up, throw up, and that's your life. Um, or whatever your situation is, it just feels purposeless and meaningless, and you're asking the question, what do I do? What am I called to do? What is, what's the meaning or the purpose of my existence on the planet and in the church? Well, Paul's going to answer that question starting this morning. I would start with, my summary is, our response to the good news must be to give ourselves body and soul to God in worship. That is our primary job. And there's some details he's going to give us about what that looks like. So Romans 12, we'll just start with verse 1. We will not go that slow, but verse 1 says a lot, so we need to talk about it. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, and the therefore is everything I just reviewed, okay? Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The word for present here, translated as present in verse 1, is a word commonly used to refer to the slaughtering of animals for religious sacrificial worship. It's a ceremonial word. He says present like as in the priest presenting the sacrifice onto the altar. That's what he's talking about. They would have heard that word and knew exactly what he meant. But the difference about this sacrifice is that it's a living sacrifice, not a dead one. That's good news. You do not have to die to be a Christian. Okay? He's saying it's a metaphor, praise God. You must die, yes, die to yourself, die with Christ, but then you're raised with Christ. Paul's talked about that. You died with him, now you've been raised with him. You are a living sacrifice, but you are still presenting yourself your whole self, bind body and soul to him as a sacrifice and worship. He turns the word on its head to refer to that same familiar act of sacrifice, familiar to them, but calls it a living one. Holy and acceptable. That was the requirement for the sacrifices in the Old Testament. It had to be a pure lamb, spotless, the best one, right? You had to pick through all the stuff you had to offer and find the best, cleanest one. To offer to him and he says this is you you have been made holy and sanctified by christ and you are being presented as a spotless sacrifice to god as an act of worship so worship is first and foremost an act of sacrifice to god it's giving yourself to him physically worship is not a state of mind or an experience it is a physical act in response to god We have cheapened worship, if I'm honest, in the modern day church and turned it into a passive experience. And we call it a worship experience. We don't. (laughs) Many, many, many people do. It's a worship experience. What does that say? That says you come and you stand and you receive an emotional experience. And it might be a really wonderful spiritual experience that is from God, okay? I'm not saying it's invaluable. I'm just saying that's not what worship is. 
Worship is not an experience. It is a physical response to who God is, fundamentally. The singing, the raising of the hands, that's why all the talk of worship in the Old Testament is physical. You are doing something. You are not standing there going, wow, I really feel God's presence. That's great. I want you to feel God's presence, but that's not worship. That's feeling God's presence. Worship is an act of response to him. It's never talked about as an internal thing that you experience. It's always talked about as something that you do. And what Paul says here is it begins, worship begins with the mind. What in the world? Worship begins here in your thinking, in your brain, as Christina talked about it this morning. Look what he says. Um, And this principle guides this entire section. Our response to being in Christ is giving ourselves in worship to God. So verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, don't be, gives you a negative principle first. Don't be conformed to this world like a mold. Don't be a jellyfish that gets squeezed into the world's mold and takes on its shape. Don't do that. But then he gives us a positive principle. He says, but instead of that, be transformed. Be changed, not by not conforming to the mold of the world, but be transformed. That means becoming, going from one kind of thing to another kind of thing. This is not an upgrade. It's not, a, it's not human 2.0. It's not, I need to get better. I need to be better. I need to act better. I need to be the change I want the world to see. Right? It's not any of it's not self-improvement. It's not, it's not, I need to learn a little bit more, know a little bit more, and do a little better. It is a complete transformation from one kind of thing to another kind of thing. And how does that happen? It starts here in your brain. The renewal of your mind. I love this because if, it's why I brought up chapter one. Because what does he say? One of the main signs of not acknowledging God as creator, not worshiping God as the creator. The first sign is futile thinking. And then he says the way you get transformed, at least to start with, is the renewal of your mind. So that's the mechanism by which we change. He says, to what end? Why does that matter? That by testing or discernment, you may discern so as to approve. This is not a discernment there. It's not talking about, well, I think this is probably wrong. It's not cynical. I want to know what God's will is, and I'm looking for it, and I'm trying to discern it so I can. I want to test it and know what God's will is. I want to know what his purpose is. What is he trying to do? Not what am I after, what's my life about. What does he want? What's God's goal this morning? What's God after? What is his will, not what is mine? And I want to be able to discern that. Wouldn't that be great to just know what God wants? And to be confident in that. To know, to not walk around wondering, God, what do you want for me? But to really know what that is. If you want to know, you've got to have your mind right. The way we get there involves first a mind change. I think this is countercultural to the church, not to the world. Because in the church, we say really silly things like, 
What we need is more heart knowledge and less head knowledge. It does not work that way. That is the opposite of what the Bible says. The Bible says you need more head knowledge so that you can have more heart knowledge. And every time we pit heart knowledge against head knowledge, we, it's like cutting off your arm and then expecting your arm to work. There is no such thing as heart change without a mind change. No, it does not exist. If, if you want your heart to change, you've got to get your mind, you've got to change your mind. There is no difference in the New Testament between believing something and thinking something. There's no difference. If you, there's no such thing as, I think one thing, but I believe another thing. It does not exist. What you think is what you believe. Now, I'm not discounting the need for, like, your heart to be changed, right? That's, your heart is where your desires come, your motives, why you do things. That needs to change. And what you feel is really important. Your emotions are important. I'm not minimizing that at all. But we don't have, it's not a one or the other thing. It is a both and thing. And if you don't address what you think, and you don't fill your mind with the truth, and have your mind renewed, then your heart will never be right. And your emotions will never be right. They will always be off. And this is why I think Paul says this transformation begins up here. Think about just becoming a Christian. That initial faith in God. Is it possible to become a Christian and not know the gospel? Not know the simple truth of I need a savior I have, there's some bad news. I'm not righteous. I need someone who is righteous. I need to be in him and not separate from him. He has offered me salvation, and I want to be with him, in him, attached to him forever. If you don't know that, you are not a Christian. You can't become one. There's content to the gospel that you must know first. You don't come in, you don't become a Christian with a blank brain <laughs> and an empty head. So there's no gap between what you think about God and what you believe about God. Your heart is as the well from which come your motives, and it is very important. I don't want you to hear the Bible saying that doesn't matter. But I think we live in a culture where we minimize what we think, and we think it doesn't matter. Everybody can have their thoughts. Every, everybody's opinion is equal. All people are equal, but not all thoughts are, are equal. We must think what God thinks. It must, must believe what he says is the truth. Your mind is the access point, the front door of your transformation. I think that's why I've never met a mature Christian that does not personally engage with the Bible themselves. I don't think that person exists. And I don't mean you've got to be like an avid reader or a good reader or that you have to be able to read at all. But you need to be able to engage with the Bible. Listen to it, hear it preached, hear it taught, hear it read to you, have someone read it to you, read teeny tiny little bits at a time. I don't care how you do it. But if you're not engaging with the Bible somehow on yourself, taking it and exploring it yourself, getting your mind filled with the truth, the words of God himself, then you cannot be a mature Christian. You cannot see the heart transformation that you want. 
No one has ever changed their behavior or their heart without a change of mind. Let me put it this way. There's no such thing as knowing too much about God. There's no such thing as knowing the Bible too well. There's no such thing of, as thinking too much about what it says. In fact, the more you do this, the more your heart and emotions will be transformed. Now, it is true, people get prideful, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Paul goes there real fast. You can get prideful about what you know and what your gifts are and how wonderfully gifted you are and start thinking you're better than other people. And he's going to tell you, stop it in just a second. Just give me a minute. But first, you need to understand that this idea that, you know, these people who just know the Bible really well, they're irritating. That's the wrong attitude. Paul never pits those things together against each other. The powerful result of this is that you will be able to test things to discern if they are from God or not. You actually start to learn what God sounds like. You start to learn what, it's, what the truth sounds like. So when you hear lies, no matter how subtle they are, you immediately discern that it's a lie. And you may not even have a verse or know why you don't think it's true. You just know it. Because it sounds wrong. Because you are so immersed, your mind is so immersed in the truth. You know what it sounds like when you hear it. I think we live in a time when all the goalposts are being moved. Have you noticed this? Every assumption we used to make regarding common beliefs, regarding morality, are no longer good assumptions. You cannot look at your neighbors to know what the true north is anymore. You need discernment. And wherever you think your neighbors are right now, probably by tomorrow, it will have shifted. Your discernment about what is good, acceptable, and perfect must be trained by the Word of God, or it will be trained by the world. That is conforming to the world. You will conform to something. Don't think for a second that you are strong enough to not conform to anything. You will, and you have, and you are right now. The question is, what will you conform to? You know, a person can do really wicked things and not have it bother their conscience at all. We're naive about this. We think the conscience is trainable. It It has been trained. What bothers you just kind of in your gut where you respond negatively or positively to things has been trained by something. And if your conscience has been trained by the wrong things, you can do wrong things and feel not only not be bothered, but feel great about it. You can feel righteous in doing evil, wicked things. Every person who's done wicked things throughout history at some point has looked themselves in the mirror and found a way to feel righteous about it. We need the Word of God We need it in our minds. They will say things like, have you heard this? I just have a piece about it. Someone can do a clearly unbiblical thing and say, I just have a piece about it. I don't know where that came from, but it's not the Bible. That is not the measure. I feel peace about things that are stupid. Don't you? I feel peace about eating too much bacon about being lazy, watching too much TV. I feel peace about lots of things. I am hard to unsettle. I feel, I just, I'm a go-with-the-flow personality. 
Wherever the river takes me is where I go. I learned a long time ago that is a, I am a terrible, my feelings about a thing are a terrible measure of the truth. But so often we say things like, I just feel peace about something that God clearly says don't do. Or we'll say things like, the God I believe in wouldn't keep me from being happy. I'm just quoting people, no one in this room, of course. These are direct quotes of people you don't know, all right? The God I believe in wouldn't want me not to be happy. Therefore, I can just divorce my wife. What is that? That's messed up thinking coming from a messed up heart. That's a person whose mind has not been renewed and therefore has no anchor for their discernment. Don't think that will not be you saying those words one day. You must fill your mind with the truth. Get in the Word. Just read the thing. I don't care if you don't understand it. That's a secondary concern. It's a concern, and I want to help you with that. But that's not the main concern. Get the words in your head. <laughs> it's amazing how the words will come out at the right time, and suddenly you'll go, oh, now, now I know what that means. Because I'm being pressed and I'm in a situation I don't understand. And suddenly the word of God comes up in your mind. And you go, oh, I know what I should do. If you don't have it there, you won't have it when you need it. All right. Let's move on. Verses 3 through 8. I'm going to read this in the NET Bible translation. Um, normally I'm using the ESV. Um, I think this is a little clearer just to help you. I'm sure you guys aren't carrying that version around with you. Um, we'll put it up here for you because um, it makes it a little clearer um, in this translation. All right, so verses 3 through 8 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. Notice how many times he says the word think. He's talking about how you think, not just how you feel. Verse 4, For just as in one body we have many members, and not all the members serve the same function, so we who are many are the one body in Christ. And individually we are members who belong to one another. And we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If the gift is prophecy, then individual must use it in proportion to his faith. If it is service, he must serve. If it is teaching, he must teach. If it is exhortation, he must exhort. If it is contributing, he must do so with sincerity. If it is leadership, he must do so with diligence. If it is showing mercy, he must do so with cheerfulness. So remember our theme set up for us in verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Remember that? That's your spiritual worship. This is how you do that. You start with worship having your mind renewed, thinking right things about God so that you can be transformed and not conformed to the world. That's number one. And number two, don't think of yourself as being better than you actually are. Instead of doing that, serve one another with your gifts. Israel preached about this recently. I'm not going to go over the same ground. But I want to say a couple of things about this. Um, These are not personality traits. 
or natural abilities or talents. Those are great, and I want you, I'm, y'all got them. I'm not talking about that. These are Christian superpowers. Okay? Really is what they are. Is these are superpowered abilities from God, not from you, that are empowered by Him to do supernatural things. This is not the fact that you can play guitar or, you know, I don't know, make things, be a carpenter, fix cars. I'm trying to think of a talent I have, and I'm coming up short. But, mo- nah, I don't even do that. Somebody else does that. Um, yeah, talking a lot. I don't know, maybe that's my talent. Um, I'm not talking, he's not talking about those things. He's talking about supernatural spiritual gifts. That's why we call them that. You have been given them by the Holy Spirit and you must use them. So these are an obligation, not just a thing you can do or not do. Like if you had this amazing ability to fly, like Superman, you could be like, I could fly or I could not fly, depending on my mood. I feel like flying today, so I'm going to fly. But maybe I don't. Maybe I just want to stay around the house. Maybe I just want to walk, right? No, 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 that's not how this works. God gives you, the Holy Spirit gives you a gift. That gift is not for you. It is for others. And you now, you have an obligation to use that gift. That's the tone of these verses. You must, if you have, if you have the gift of service, you must serve. If you have the gift of prophecy, you must prophesy. You must. It's a command. There's more heat on it than we like to think about. Notice this beautiful phrase Paul uses in verse 5. I love this very much. He says, so, so we who are many are one body in Christ. And then he says, and individually we are members who belong to one another. You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to each other. Individually, we are individuals who belong to others. You have individual gifts, individual callings, but none of that belongs to you. You are not the decider of when you get to use your gift and don't. You belong to someone else. You belong to the body. We are individuals, but we are not disconnected, disembodied members unto ourselves. We belong to one another in Christ. Knowing this is the essence of true humility. By not using the gifts God has given you, you hurt the rest of the body to which you belong. You're actually doing damage to it. So pride says that you're a bigger deal than you actually are. That's what pride does to us. It's nasty stuff. Humility sees yourself with sober judgment in light of who you are in Christ. So humility is not being down on yourself. Humility is not, I'm not a big deal. It's not the opposite of thinking you're a bigger deal than you are. Humility is seeing yourself as God sees you. Clearly. I am not elevating myself as more important. I'm seeing myself. I mean, did Jesus do that? Has anyone ever been more of a bigger deal than Jesus? More gifted, more called, more holy, more better <laughs> than anyone? Jesus is the ultimate. He's at the top of the heap. He is preeminent, Colossians says. Yet what did Jesus do? He humbled himself and put himself at the bottom. The very bottom rung of humanity is where he put himself. That's humility. Jesus claimed to be God, yet humbled himself. 
So let's compare pride and humility for a minute. Pride expects others to serve you. To release your potential. I'm trying to use some buzzwords. To put you first. To make you feel seen. To properly detect your great giftedness. To make room for you. To ask your opinion. And to use their gifts to bless you. That's what pride does. None of us, I think, would say, I'm a bigger deal than everyone else. Unless we're being sarcastic and trying to be funny. Pride expresses itself in really slippery ways. Pride make, disguises itself as righteousness. A feeling of righteousness. A feeling of doing the right thing. The church needs me to use my gift. God demands that I use my gift. It takes all the things we've said so far about gifts, and it feels righteous in making yourself more important than you should. Humility, on the other hand, is ambitious for the bottom of the heap. Ambitious for the bottom. Just a couple weeks ago, Clark Beck, good friend of mine, um, they ordained him as the pastor at Living Way Church, and John held, many of you know, retired after 30 years. And the first thing I said to him was, welcome to the bottom of the ladder. You have been promoted to the bottom. Your ambition has brought you to being, you are the least important person in the room now. Congratulations. It is a promotion, but it is a promotion to the bottom. And our ambition, humility says, your ambition is to be the least, to be at the bottom. The lowest rung of the success ladder. It does not need to be served. It does not need to be seen. It does not need to be acknowledged. Humility wants only to bring its gifts to bear on the need of another. Humility can receive love freely and also give it to all others generously, even those who don't love you. Humility is happy to be last, lowest, and least. Last, lowest, and least. It's happiest there. So Paul is not simply listing gifts here. Uh, it's different from, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, you've got a list of gifts there. It's different in this way. There's a different list of gifts too, but the real difference is here he says, we, we all need to work together. Yes, Paul is saying that not everyone has the same gift with the same measure. That's interesting. Everyone has a different amount of faith. So have you ever encountered this in your life where you are with someone else, some friend of yours, let's say, has the same gifts as you. But they have more. They have a greater measure of faith for their gift. And you think, well, what about me? It's a bummer. You either feel bad about yourself and you stop using your gift, or you, start, you become competitive. And you start trying to think, well, I, I, can, I can prophesy as good as, as, as Michael Cotton. I mean, surely I can be as, I'm going to go try. And you start making a fool of yourself. You get competitive, start trying to wedge your way in where you know you shouldn't be. Or you just get quiet and say nothing. It's hard when you have the same gift to a lesser proportion. Or you have the same gift to a greater proportion. I think that's Paul's focus here. 
This is emphasis. It's just thinking about those of us who have a gift, and God's given you a lot of faith for it. And so it's very fruitful, and it's very effective, and everyone's kind of impressed with you. It's very easy in that place. It's very dangerous. When people are telling you how great you are, they start to think that maybe you are better. And you feel elevated by your gift. And Paul says, don't think yourself better than you are. Don't do it. Pride will tell you it's a competition. And you will become divisive and feel righteous while doing it. Meaning God demands that I use my gift. I must use it even if I steamroll over you. Even at the expense of others. Humility will tell you not to think you're more important than you are. And love, that will be next week. Paul goes on to that next. Will tell you to prefer the other. That's a harder one. So humility is like, I, I don't think myself more important than I am. Love, he pushes it even harder, even further. Which not only do you not think yourself more than you are, he says, prefer the other. How can I help you? How can I use my gift to elevate you? How can I use my gift to elevate your gift? If we both have a prophetic gift, how can I help you use your gift more than mine? That's a different thing, isn't it? That means you're using your gift less in one sense, but more in another. And this is Paul's model. He says, we're not all gifted differently. That would be wonderful. And we've said that before, and I think it's slightly wrong. Some of us are gifted the same, but in a different measure. And we would say, that's unfair. Why wouldn't God give me the bigger gift? Because obviously, (laughs) I'm a bigger deal. (laughs) I'm more faithful. I work harder at it. I don't know why God does it the way he does it. And I think... What Paul's addressing here in this church in Rome, and I think in our church too, and in the whole um, New Testament church, which is he doesn't give us all the same proportion of faith for the things we're called to do for our gifts. And the answer to that is not to compete, but it's to lower ourselves in humility and prefer the other. There's this wonderful story about, um, I've been trying to think of a good example of this kind of humility um, George, Whit- the great preacher George Whitfield was terribly betrayed by John Wesley. There was a lot of church drama even back then. Both of them great preachers, very fruitful. Lots of miracles, revival, all sorts of things. But John Wesley personally attacked George Whitfield on multiple occasions, wrote letters and newspapers and all kinds of, I mean, it's bad stuff. You go read it, it's entertaining, but it's like also sad. Betrayed him, stabbed him in the back made personal attacks, not just theological ones, um, stole ministries from him, discredited him. It was bad. And at every turn, Whitfield would not enter into that game with him. He would refuse to attack him publicly. He would argue theologically, but he would never use those personal attacks. And he would, he would recommend him to other people. And towards the end of his life, someone asked Whitfield publicly this question he said asked him hey george whitfield do you think you'll see john wesley in heaven what an opportunity to slam the guy here's 
I'm going to quote Whitfield here. He said, I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him. <laughs> Do you see that? Everybody knew they were enemies. And he had such, somehow maintained such respect for him that he could honestly say, he's going to be so far ahead of me in heaven near the throne that I won't even be able to see him. I'll be so far into the back. So, what I think Paul's point here is that the body of Christ needs your gift. He really does. Get to work. Do the thing God's given you to do in whatever measure of faith God's given you to use it. Use it. You must use it. You do not have a choice. You are obligated by God. He is coming with a measuring tape asking, I gave you this thing. Are you using it? All of that is true. But do not think yourself more highly than you ought. Whether you are less gifted or more gifted, depending on your level of confidence, I think as the words have been shared this morning, the picture I've been getting, and Israel weirdly kind of almost said exactly the same thing, is if you think of us as a body, right? All these different parts, members, and between us, maybe all of us, there are these little hairline fractures at the joints that little, little slights, little opinions about each other, little like, mm, I'm a little better than that person, mm, I'm a little not, I'm not as good as that person, Little hairline fractures that you don't see that exist and just sit there and they can be there your whole life and no one see it. But then God says, said to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And he doesn't say, but I told him he couldn't. He just says it. Like, and he tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And I think, God has, is saying to the American church, I have, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And what we will see happen is Satan comes and puts pressure on that fracture. And you will either have to heal it or see it break. One or the other. And you will discover things in your own heart that are prideful and gross. And you did not see it until there was pressure. I won't ask for a show of hands, but every Christian in this room has experienced this. And this is what's happening. And the answer will be the healing comes when we choose humility, forgiveness. God, I want what's in my heart to be what you want to be in my heart. Would you change my mind? Renew my mind. The thoughts I think about myself, the thoughts I think about other people, heal every fracture. I want no hairline fractures between me and anyone else. Even if it's a teeny tiny little thing, some little opinion I have, some little thought I have, some slight I have. You know, Jesus said, leave, if you know that someone else has something against you, Heather alluded to it, and you're in, you come to the altar to worship, leave your offering and go get right with them. So he, the point of that is he prioritizes Getting, healing the fractures over sacrificing in worship. That's profound, because worship clearly is a big deal to God. He says, wait a minute, heal the fracture. 
And so if you're feeling this pressure this morning, God's speaking to me, there's pressure in my life, I'm seeing cracks everywhere, God is saying to you, heal them up. And I'm just prophesying to you, Satan's coming to the church to sift it like wheat. Is where we are as a nation. And we are a part of that. Living Hope Church is a part of that. And I want, when the pressure comes on, I want to find no fractures, no splits, no wedges, no slights, no opinions in my mind about people or about myself that God didn't put there. Amen? So I just want to stand behind all the other words this morning um, and say, listen to God. I'm hoping, it's happening in my own heart, that as we listen to God speak, that we also see, oh man, there's this thing in my heart. I need, to, I need to let this go. I need to just repent. I need to turn away from it. Um, maybe there's somebody you need to forgive. Maybe there's somebody you know that has a problem with you. You need to go to them. It's not just waiting around for them to come to you. The problem is the fracture. And so you've got to deal with it and let God bring healing to it. So I want to pray. Why don't we stand up together? We're going to sing one more song together, and I want to, um, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to everybody. Go back and right where I started this sermon. What's my response? Is there forgiveness I need to give? Is there a conversation I need to have? Is there something I need to repent of? What is the Holy Spirit provoking in my heart? And then just do that thing. And if you can do it right now, in this very moment, in this very place, before the last note of the last song plays, then do it. But if you got to wait till you get home or till you can get to a phone, then do that. But whatever God's provoking in your heart, pointing out to you, you need to respond because he is repeating himself. He is repeating himself to you. And to not respond to him would be a big mistake. Amen? So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you, God, we, we, we acknowledge that you are speaking to us. And I, we know that that's not just some general thing for America. <laughs> because we are the church. We are a part of her. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would heal every fracture, renew every thought, that every thought that we think would be placed over and against what we know of who you are and what you say. God, that the truth would be spoken, the truth would be thought, and the truth would be received. God, let none of us think of ourselves more highly than we ought. God, I pray that we would be ambitious for the bottom, ambitious for the promotion of others, ambitious for the fruitfulness of the gifting in other people. 
God, that we would use our gifts to love and to serve and to be joyful. God, that the world would be changed and that we would not be conformed to it, but that instead you would send us out into the world with these gifts, these superpowers you've given us, that you would send us out into the world not to become part of it, but to transform it. And that we would be people of humility. God, the world would see us not as people that rant and rave and, and yell from the sidelines. People with megaphones in their hands that love the sound of their own voice. But God, that we will be people of humility that use our superpowers to advance your kingdom and bring the good news to the world. Lord, would you start here with us in this community? We need your help. Would you silence the thoughts of the enemy? That we bind up his words and his mouth right now in the name of Jesus. Those attacks against us, it says, oh, you're not gifted. You're not, your gift doesn't matter. It's too small. Your faith is too small. Your, the, the, the amount God has given you is paltry and small and pointless. God, that, that voice would be shut out. God, I pray that every member would be attached and would belong to another. So would you do that in us? Do this in your church around the world. God, that as we are tested, that we would show ourselves approved. In the name of Jesus. Amen.